Here is the physiognomy of our own woods and fields. Here are the things of our own atmosphere. Here is American nature and the feeling it awakens. William Cullen Bryant. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. All right, so we are a long way from the Chesapeake Bay, where we have been for the past five, six, seven episodes. We are now in the beautiful Hudson River Valley of New York. So... My girlfriend and I went up to a wedding for a very close friend, and uh, the wedding was in Brooklyn. But um, we decided, uh, for many reasons, we would rather stay up in the Hudson River Valley about an hour and 20, an hour and a half outside of New York City. The Hudson River Valley is one of my favorite places because that's where I have spent so much time while living in New York City, being able to escape. Um, And it's incredibly beautiful, similar to some uh, of the Blue Ridge Mountains where we live here, but obviously you have um, an amazing river winding through it. While in the Hudson River Valley, I was able to record two episodes. Today's, which is going to be about a painting movement in the 1800s, we'll hear more about that in a moment, and the next episode in two weeks, which is about Hudson River Valley lore. That one is with Jonathan Crook, and he is a master storyteller. He is an author and folklorist, and he has just a long list, dozens and dozens and dozens of wonderful, whimsical, gothic stories about the Hudson River Valley. We're going to hear about Native American legends that are hyper-local to like as local as a certain waterfall that I've visited many, many times. And then, of course, we're going to hear about the legend of Sleepy Hollow because, uh, well, there's incredibly interesting history about the legend of Sleepy Hollow because it happened right there. And every um, every autumn around Halloween, Jonathan Cruck does a uh, sold-out uh, solo performance. He does dozens of them in an old church that actually inspired the author, Washington Irving. And... Um, just an incredible episode filled with lore and filled with he- and history. So I'm really excited as we get closer to autumn, get closer to Halloween to present that episode. But today's episode is with a documentary filmmaker, Vin Tabone. He has made two documentaries and working on a third as part of a trilogy on the Hudson River School. The Hudson River School was a movement of painting, American painting, in the mid-1800s. We're talking the 1820s to like the 1870s. So 
this was a, from what I gather, not only from his documentary, but from just what I can remember from art history, is that America was really looking for an identity and America was always looked down upon by the Europeans, especially for their art and their culture and class and um, just all things having to do with um, high high art. And it sounds as though the Hudson River School was perhaps the first American art movement to really um, be looked at with great um, reverence and highly by the critics. So the Hudson River School was founded by Thomas Cole. He was the first guy to do it in the early 1800s. And then you're going to hear throughout this podcast a handful of other artist names. You are going to hear Frederick Church. You're going to hear Albert Bierstadt. You're going to hear Asher Durand, Jasper Cropsey. There was a whole handful of these artists, part of this movement. They were all painting these wilderness scenes. They're all landscape painters. And as you listen to this, I want you to take a moment to imagine a world before photography, before movies. I mean, now, you know, you jump on Instagram and you can see a million incredible photographs. You know, you can see a beautiful photograph after a beautiful photograph of incredible landscapes. But I want you to imagine a world where you live in New York City and, you know, maybe you've never even left New York City and you get to go to a gallery and see these grand landscapes of the West, of the Adirondacks, of the Hudson River Valley. I want you to imagine how incredible that must have been for the common person to witness um, such beautiful art as a representation of the country that you live in and places you'll never go. And so obviously because a podcast is a auditory experience, I feel as though it would be helpful for you to look at some of the artwork of the Hudson River School just so you understand the images, things we're talking about. Uh, Vin will actually talk about specific paintings. So yes, you can go ahead and Google uh, Hudson River School. You can get an idea of the style. Um, But to be more um, exact, I've actually put um, links in the show notes. I put a, a handful of reference images with links and They're all links to the actual museums for the most part. Um, And you can actually go in with a zoom, with a little um, zoom tool, and you can go super, super close up and look at the details. So all of the images that I linked are um, high, high quality. So you can really, if you want to spend some time looking at those images, look at the symbols they put in there, look at the way they painted the style, you can really um, get a a taste, um, an accurate taste for what these guys were doing. So, um, of course, like any art movement, I I don't like all of the art. Uh, Some of the paintings I find a little too fantastical. Some of them, I think, to the modern eye are almost a little bit cheesy. And yet there are some that are absolutely awe-inspiring, and some of them are so dramatic. Uh, Thomas Cole, who again is the founder, some of his, I feel, are the best. They are really dramatic, big patches of darkness in the imagery, the way these guys painted these um, snaggle, these you know, um, gnarly trees, and um, the way they painted rocks and, and light and shadow, incredible. Some of my favorite images I put in those references are Lake with Dead Trees, absolutely beautiful image. 
Home in the Woods by Thomas Cole, another one I put a link to. I absolutely love that one. It's so romantic. Um, you can, you know, you really feel the um, the promise of what uh, a homesteader could have looked forward to. I mean, it's a little scene with a man in, he's coming out of his canoe, he's been fishing. The canoe has some plants in it, so he must have been foraging. He's walking to his homestead where his wife and children are, and you can see clothes hanging on the line and just an incredible vista in the background. And that's one of my favorite of this entire movement. Um, then there's Albert Bierstadt, who was a German, and he you'll hear about him in the podcast, but he went out west. And his are some of the most um, grandiose of the images because he was painting the West. Um, the two images I talked about um, with Vin that I said that I saw in Washington, D.C., those two images are The Last of the Buffalo and Mount Corcoran. Mount Corcoran is the one that has the little black bear in it. Uh, both of those I also added references to. One of the most fascinating parts of this podcast is you're going to hear about all the symbols that these painters were using. Yes, they're a big landscape, but there's more to it than that. The clouds have meaning. The tiny little figures have meaning. The details, such as a felled tree or a railroad, have meaning. And we're going to hear all about that from Vin. So Vin really does a great job <clears throat> at helping us, helping me interpret this art as more than what meets the eye, to see that that in these paintings, there was a spiritual message and there was a moral message that is beyond just the beauty or the documentation of capturing and painting specific American landscapes. There was more to it than that. Now, even if you're not particularly interested in hearing a podcast about art, you know, I know that this podcast has covered all sorts of topics and I, of course, I cannot assume that everybody's interested in every single one. But if for some reason you don't want to hear about a bunch of guys who have been going out and painting the wilderness, kind of adventure artists, which I find so fascinating, well, I would still say you've got to listen till after about two-thirds into the episode, we switch gears. So the whole first two-thirds is about this this uh, movement and about Vin's documentaries. After that, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know a major theme of this podcast is mysterious stories, the paranormal, uh, ghosts, um, strange experiences in nature, uh, et cetera, folklore, et cetera, et cetera. So this whole conversation was quite grounded. It's very much an art history class. Um, but then about two-thirds in, Vin reads a um, from Thomas Cole. Again, he's the founder of this movement. He reads Thomas Cole's uh, essay about getting lost in the woods. And that is a quite um, kind of surreal. I mean, for Thomas Cole, it must have been really uh, a surreal and kind of dreamlike, nightmarish uh, experience he had being lost in the woods. But after that, Vin just starts telling about four or five, very short, some of them are just a paragraph, maybe even just a few sentences, um, of all these little paranormal experiences, both of his friends and that he's had. And I mean, I was like, wowed. 
Um, you know, I feel like through this podcast, there are a handful of topics that are I'm starting to be more comfortable with. You know, I've heard so many ghost stories, and of you know, you hear them all over the place. That that I feel as though one has an idea of what a ghost is. You know, there's so much out there about UFOs. I feel like people kind of have a, an idea of what that is. And then there are stories that are just so incredibly mysterious that I'm not sure what to do with them. Uh, for instance, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, the herbalists, some of them have talked about fairies, have talked about gnomes. To me, that's just incredible and astonishing. And I don't know what to make of that yet. And then last episode with um, Daniel Firehawk, he told about his grandfather and father and uncle being lost in the marshes um, in, uh, of uh, the Eastern Shore in Maryland and coming in contact with a ball of light that was within arm's reach and which they led them out of being lost. I'm not sure what to make of stories like that. And today, I'm not going to ruin it. You got to listen. Vin, it's very, very short, but basically he had a very strange experience while climbing a tree as a little kid. And I don't know what to make of it. But, but what I do know is hearing all of these stories from every guest is making life so much more mysterious and magical and awe-inspiring and unknowable. So before we jump in to this episode, which was a great pleasure, I just want to read such a kind review that I've had on the podcast. Um, so I'm so honored. You know, it really means a lot to hear back that this podcast is worth doing. And lately, I've been getting some responses that are uh, so inspiring and heartwarming. For instance, um, someone who has hired me to do his logo, Joseph, um, he sent me a really kind text that um, his father, who is now deceased, on his last few days um, of life, his father, who is in his 90s, that uh, his father was kind of in a chaotic state. And Joseph played one of the podcasts, the one with the outdoorsman, the hunter who had this experience, who his friend had an experience with a man-eating puma. He played that episode for his father, who was a hunter all his life. And it calmed this man who was only days away from going to the other side. It calmed him down. And to hear it, get a text like that was like so moving that uh, that's the whole point of this podcast. Um, it's um, that I pray that this thing, through the stories of the guests, through these really inspiring people, that um, there can be a powerful moment like that. So I just wanted to share this um, review on Apple. And um, if you feel like leaving a review, those are very helpful. I keep hearing from other podcasts that that will help um, the traction of the podcast and will help it um, be seen by more people. Always great. So anyways, we from um, Huckleberry Fairy, thank you so much, wrote, listening to this podcast is like sitting around a campfire under the stars and hearing the intimate and profound conversations that happen in that space. I love the diversity of the themes that each episode holds. Listening truly has helped me remember the awe and mystery of this crazy life. Dot, dot, dot. 
this has quickly turned into one of my all-time favorite podcasts. So we moved from Manhattan to Stony Point, New York, which is literally right on the Hudson River, 30, 40 miles north of Manhattan. And um, that's from here. We're in Croton on the Hudson, New York, in Westchester County. Rockland County is directly across the river from Croton on the Hudson. And uh, maybe 10 miles north of here, Stony Point, on the western side of the river. We're on the east side of the river. And uh, I don't know if I'd say this is like the cradle of the Hudson Valley. It's probably the lower Hudson Valley. Hudson Valley, uh, I guess, would be considered, you know, heading up towards the Catskills. And although a lot of the Hudson River School painters spent a lot of time in the West Point area, which, uh, again, on the west side of the Hudson River, and which is about 10 miles north of Stony Point. Again, as a kid, and I say kid, teenage years, 20s, 30s, now even more, you know, a few decades later, I've spent so much time going through some of the same parts that Asher Duran, Thomas Cole, Thomas Cole painted in Cold Spring, which is just five or 10 miles north of here on the east side of the Hudson. And um, so growing up in Stony Point, right on the Hudson River, um, you know, afforded me such a, such a great uh, upbringing being surrounded by the mountains and the rivers and the streams. And I, and I took an instant, you know, liking to it, fell in love with it, literally would walk through the streams and through the woods as a kid and carried that into my high school years. We'd all go up to Bear Mountain and uh, Seven Lakes Drive, and people listening to this may, may know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But there are seven lakes up there near Bear Mountain. In Harriman State Park, Harriman right? State Park. And, it's uh, so beautiful back there. Isn't it? I was saying, so I did, I told you, I did another episode where it was about the lore of this area. Yeah. And I was saying that um, I used to come up here all the time when I lived in New York to do a lot of my like film locations. Right. And, you know, I filmed a lot in Cold Spring. Yeah. Filmed a lot in Harriman State Park. Yeah. So like these were, that 10 years I lived in New York, these, this is my escape and my stomping grounds. I yeah. love it so much back here. Yeah. Now when, now, when you say Stony Point, is that before the little um, S, uh, S of the river where Bear Mountain is? Is it before Bear Mountain? It's before, it's south of Bear Mountain. Okay. Yeah. I okay. know what you mean, that that sharp turn in the river there. Yeah. Um, it's before yeah. that. I wonder if I'm uh, familiar with that landscape or, or the, um, the, what's the right word? It's just the north spot. of Havistroy where the, the river kind of, well, it opens up near Nyack, near the Tap, okay. Tappan Zee Bridge, mm-hmm. whatever they're going to call it. Um, and then it kind of narrows as you get a little further north, but it's a pretty wide expanse around the Havistraw. Havistraw Bay is probably a mile or two across. Okay. And then Stony Point is just the next town up from Havistraw and uh, juts out into the Hudson River, was a strategic military point. I'm not up on my revolutionary history, but Mm -hmm. uh, Mad Anthony Wayne, you know, was the, the... the general in charge of the troops here, uh, you know, defending the the um, the continental U.S. from the Brits and uh, from the British Army, and the, so that was a stronghold. They said Stony Point was really the last kind of 
fort hold or, you know, spot where they could defend the Hudson River so the British Army couldn't make their way into Manhattan, which I think was the capital, um, like Washington is. I think it was. Yeah. I think it was Manhattan was the capital. Yeah. And then it moved to Philadelphia and then it moved to Washington, D.C. Right, right. So, so but something I was actually thinking about last night, and I could have easily Googled it, but I thought it'd be more interesting to ask you. Yeah. Where does the Hudson River go? So it opens, it starts <laughs> at the beginning of Manhattan it starts on the where, west side? Well, it starts where it really starts, right? It flows south, but it's it really kind of flows two ways, and the Indians had a name for that, which, yes. I, which I, I don't remember right now. Because a lot of salt water from the ocean mm. literally comes up the river, mm. and I think goes as far north as maybe Albany, oh, okay, which is about 50 or 60 miles mm-hmm. from Manhattan Bay, New York mm-hmm. Bay. <clears throat> so it really starts in the Adirondacks, right. which is where the Hudson River starts. I don't know how many miles up, maybe 100 miles wow, from there okay. to New York Bay. Wow, okay. Um, something like that. But it's from what I've read, I've never really gone all the way, all the way up there <clears throat> to see where the Hudson started, but um, starts. But uh, I hear it's just like trickling streams. That's incredible. You know, and all these tributaries work their way into the river, and the next thing you know, you know. Yeah, so I just finished doing, um, I got enamored by the Chesapeake Bay, which yeah. is which is two hours from where we live in the mountains. Yeah. And the rivers that go to the Chesapeake Bay are little streams that are ankle deep where right. I live. Exactly. And then it turns into the Epic Bay. It's amazing. Incredible. How much water actually makes its way into that. Incredible. Yeah. So, um, all right. So the reason we're talking today is you're a documentary filmmaker and you your focus thus far on your two documentaries has been the Hudson River School of Painters. That's right. And I've uh, living in New York... Um, I, when I lived in New York, you know, I was very focused on art, like art history. I was very focused on my filmmaking, but I hadn't yet got in touch with nature. Whereas now I live in the mountains and for four years I've been hunting and fishing and foraging and all those things out in the woods. And so, you know, we're learned, we, now we know all of our trees and all the animals, et cetera. (laughs) That's great. So I always loved the visual of the, uh, Hudson river school. And, um, when I lived here, I, I went to, I, I think in, um, in uh, Yonkers, there's a museum that has a bunch of their paintings. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I've always loved this region. I loved looking at all those paintings. And now that I have more of a relationship with nature, revisiting these paintings, they're so awesome. Yeah, yeah. And uh, obviously, this they're your passion. And that's why we're talking today. Um, I guess what would be cool, you just kind of told us about here. When these guys were, I guess, let's do... Before we... Before I ask you to kind of talk about these guys and the the genre um, and what they were actually painting for someone who's not familiar with the paintings, what was this region like when they were coming up here painting it? So these guys were like 1820s and pl- up to 1820, mid- yeah, 1825. The Hudson River School was between 1825, the popularity, and like 1865, 1875. Okay. okay. What did it look like? You know, amazingly enough, it looks pretty similar to what it is now. The north, once you get out of Manhattan and go north, well, Westchester's pretty built up, Rockland's mm. pretty built up now, but where they concentrated their hikes and painting uh, excursions, even in Cold Spring, Thomas Cole painted uh, Breakneck Mountain, which is that huge mountain. Oh, I've hiked right it. Right across from Cold Spring. From, and you can see Storm King. Yeah. For, uh, Storm King. I'm sorry. Storm King Mountain. He painted Storm King Mountain. Yep. So, uh, and near West Point, there's a spot 
where you used to be able to go without passing through all kinds of crazy security mm. that looks north towards Newburgh, which was a mm -hmm. really popular spot with John Kensett and Tom Asher Duran, Thomas Cole, a lot of the Hudson River School painters. So they were, you know, all in this region. Now, was it, because I've seen your documentaries, I've seen other documentaries. Yeah. They keep saying like wilderness. Was it really like wilderness out here? Yeah, yeah. It was, so it was like farm, small homesteads and yeah. and just wilderness. Yeah, yeah. That's all, yeah. Mm. Very, I'm not sure what the roads looked like in the 1800s, but. Um, How were they, so the, all the painters we're going to talk about lived in New York City. Well, uh, the majority of them, and that's kind of how they got the name the Hudson River School, because most of them lived in New York or on the banks of the river and painted in this area in New Would they York. come up via boat, or would they be like— Yeah, they come, They go up a boat, they okay. go up the river and uh, and make their way up the, to the Catskills. Actually, when Thomas Cole, he was the, the founder, quote-unquote founder— of the Hudson River School, which wasn't really a school per se. Mm. It was more of a group of like-minded painters. A style, and a style. Style, landscape painters. They were considered America's first school of landscape painters. And um, so he made a trip from Manhattan. He was living in Manhattan, um, up the Hudson River, sketched, you know, different sites, including Kill Falls and a few other uh, lakes up there in the Catskills, brought them back to New York, painted three or four paintings, put them in a, I think it was a frame shop window, and was discovered mm. by John Trumbull, Asher Duran, you know, some of New York's uh, pretty famous... Now, uh, was he... So this is a young artist going up into the woods, into nature to yeah. to make sketches right. and to absorb the landscape. Is he like camping in a tent or is he staying with some little farmer or something? Like He must have, although in some of the stories I've read, he would, I mean, he would, I'm sure the other painters probably did the same thing. They would find homes in mm. the woods, maybe log cabins where people would let them stay and people would <sighs> feed so cool. them and- a story, a little story I'm going to read later. Um, he kind of uh, says that when he finally got out of the danger he was in, he saw a cabin with smoke. Mm. And he, you know, I don't know, you knock on the door and you mm. say, uh, I'm an artist and uh, I almost lost it. I almost drowned a few minutes ago. And they let him in and he stayed there and they fed him. And he said he had... Uh, it was such a dichotomy because he went from almost drowning to a few hours later eating a venison steak mm, nice. with, with these strangers that took him in. And you know. nice. so I'm assuming that you know they would either do that or they had they wouldn't journey far from where they were staying. Mm. They would journey off for the day and they make their way back. I really, and I guess we'll talk about it as we talk about some of the real, um, the real, the highlighting some of the main. Um, people in the movement. Right. But something I find so awesome because I'm an artist, my girlfriend's an artist, uh, is I love the idea of like the adventurer artist. Like one of the guys in the crew is, uh, I never know how to say, say his name, Bierstadt. Oh, Albert Bierstadt. Yeah. Bierstadt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're like adventurers. Like he went, he, yeah, he painted here, but he these, went out West. These guys literally traveled West in like covered wagons. They went on, uh, expeditions with the, the military. 
who I guess were scoping out the land, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, recording the topography. And, you know, this was all new, unexplored, mm -hmm. you know, territory in 1820, 1830. And uh, um, that's in part one, actually, on, on, on Bierstadt. He went out with uh, Frederick Landers, was, a, I guess, a colonel or someone in the military and went out with him and became good friends. You know, you spend a lot of time together with people mm. and every day and traveling and, you know, cutting through the woods or making your, your way and uh, all the dangers, animals, Indians, whatever mm. they were up against. And, uh, and he painted a lot of Indians and he became friends with a lot of Native Americans mm. and, and actually was, uh, was a champion for them. And that's why he painted a lot of scenes with American Indians and, and that not, in my first documentary called The Hudson River School Artistic Pioneers, Albert Bierstadt is quoted as saying, you know, I wanted to paint them before they faded away and disappeared, literally forever. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that was the other thing about the Hudson River School painters. They were environmentally minded. Well, I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah, they were, um, you know, against the railroads, you know, destroying the, the woods and uh, cutting all the trees down and... Uh, Probably similar to, you know, neighborhoods being gentrified here mm. and <clears throat> neighborhoods being destroyed by, you know, when I lived in, in Rockland County, when I moved there in 66, 67, something like that, it was farms and silos really? and uh, very country, very, a uh, lot of open land. And, you know, 10 years later, they're chopping more trees down to make another uh, uh, development a development here, a development there, which meant another 20 houses and then up the mountain. I used to have a beautiful mountain from from where I lived. I used to go up there and pick raspberries mm. and and bring them home for breakfast and have them in my cereal. Mm. Well, 10 years later, that mountain was all stripped and there were houses and, you know, so um, change is just inevitable. And, um, and Cole even says at one point in one of his diary entries um hey i was lucky to I, I was surprised you even said i was something to the effect of i was lucky that um there was a path made through the the woods at a certain point where he kind of knew where he was going after he was lost mm. and i thought that was kind of odd that he would say oh I, I was actually he was actually happy that some kind of industrial something mm. had cleared the way because mm. uh he was you know staunchly op opposed to that so and they all were. They all had some kind of environmental message in their paintings. I mean, their paintings had a lot of messages, and uh, it it ranged from political messages, um, educational, environmental, uh, the state of the nation, politics, and uh, so um, you could say they were the uh, they were the um, you know the YouTube of the day or the Twitter of the day, you know, mm. that's how people, mm. you know, kind of got their not news necessarily. There were newspapers, of course, but, you know, people would see that art and really be influenced by it emotionally. And um, it would lead to conversations about what was going on in the town and in the country and in the state. And uh, mm. so, uh, yeah, that's their popularity grew. So for, for people who aren't familiar with some of these paintings, because I'm liking what you're talking about, and I want to stick to that for a few minutes, sure. but just so people who have never seen the paintings before, they're these really grand mm. uh, landscapes 
um, I've heard often that they were trying to capture like a the God element of it and right. the the wildness and the, and they're very there's a lot of majesty in their paintings. Um, all of them are of landscapes and nature. Right. Starting here in the Hudson River Valley and then heading out west, there's ones of Yellowstone, et cetera. And South America. I and mean, South America, yes. Frederick Church traveled to South America. Uh, Martin Johnson, he traveled to South America. And again, the, the paintings reflected the times because, um, um, you know, the, uh, what was it, Darwin and the theory of evolution mm. and all that was going on like in 1859 or somewhere thereabouts. And... Um, uh, Frederick Church was was really inspired by um, oh, who was that? Um, I'm drawing a blank now. It'll come to me. Who did all these great studies about um, about you know like the origin of the species and uh, but he went to South America to see all these different things firsthand. That was inspired, mm. and that was one of Frederick Church's you know largest paintings, The Heart of the Andes, which is at the mm-hmm. Met, which was right is strategically right across from Albert Beard's that um, Lander's Peak painting. Mm. So I had only just found out a couple of years ago that there was a little bit of competition between those two mm. guys. You know, sure. so the paintings were large and they wanted to be dramatic and really emphasize the sublime and the power mm. of nature and the and really the grandeur of nature and the message that God is one with nature. That was, they were big on that. Again, they were all... You know, pious men back in the day, very religious, and uh, and they were convinced that you know, being in nature, you were really closer to God, mm. closer to. Uh, well, that's true. You know, you're the, bringing up so many things. I want to dissect a little bit. Okay. But, so you're saying that the, the presentation of this work, and there's something I really wanted to put on the podcast, which is basically that what you're saying right now, and I saw in your documentary how the heart of the Andes painting. When it was put out, um, he, um, um, which one? Who did that one? Was it Church? Frederick Church. Yeah. So Church, um, it was behind a curtain. You had yeah. to come pay money to see it. He put plants around it, and so it was an event to see these paintings. Right, right. And it, it was. It was an event. I think it was a quarter to, to a quarter. view it, which was a lot of money back in the day. I can't imagine. But he followed. Okay, just uh, Alexander von Humboldt who was a, a naturalist, mm. who was pretty famous back in the day. Actually, there was just a documentary on him. I'm not sure what channel it was on, but it was really like an hour, hour and a half. Very interesting. Mm. I mean, such an accomplished uh, person and um, discovered so many different species of plants and, mm. and even uh, insects and mm. just an incredible person. So he had put out a book. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the title, but he inspired Frederick Church, Mm. Martin Johnson Heed, you know, artists back in the day to, you know, really go to the places he was talking about. Mm. Um, But yeah, again, this was how they made their living. And they, they, they weren't all that dramatic with their presentations, but Frederick Church did set up um, I think it may have been in the 10th Street studio building, which Mm. was a place on 10th Street in New York City, which was a gathering place of artists, poets, writers, mm. sculptors, uh, sculptors, uh, all the creative minds mm-hmm. of the New York uh, community. And they rented rooms. And mm. this is where they painted. And this is where mm. they had their studios. 
Um, and this is where they conversed and exchanged ideas and inspired one another. And I think that's where he had... Yeah, so it's a bit of a gallery, too. Okay, yeah, and that's... So I think that's and I think where it said in your documentary, like 10,000 people came to look at this thing. Amazing, amazing. So, so what I wanted to say yeah. is that... So my girlfriend and I, as artists, we you know love going to museums. Yeah. And a few years ago, we went to check out... Um, you know, Washington, D.C. is not that close from where we live. It's like an hour and a half to get to the museums. Um, I forgot which museum we're in. Maybe it's the um, the National Gallery of Art. Right. But there's a there's a little hallway, and it's got I I think they're both Bierstadt, mm. and they're so big. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of them is like of a Western scene with a like a black bear drinking water. Right. On the that's and then on the other side is a like a huge buffalo scene. I think there's two Native Americans there. Right. That it's like a hunting buffalo scene. Yeah. And when the second I saw that, I feel like I got a bit of information about like what these artists were doing, which is that like this was a movie theater. Right. Like this is before there were movies. Right. This is it. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so big and yeah. it's so cinematic and yeah. awe inspiring that I imagine to the people of that time period, like to look at this would be like a movie theater. Oh yeah. Like you would go like, oh, I can't wait to go see that painting. We've heard about it. Un until you stand in front of one of those oh. huge paintings, like you know, it's really it has such an impact. Unbelievable. You know, you really feel like. And you're, there's, you're there. And the compositions mm. are very cinematic. Yeah. Extremely cinematic. I mean, you have to imagine so many filmmakers and um, cinematographers have used those paintings for like Western inspiration oh, yeah, and such. Yeah. And, and the details, especially mm. in the heart of the Andes, well, in Lander's Peak also, the, the Bierstadt painting, there's such details. I mm. think in the, in the Bierstadt painting, you even see like, um, um, what do you call them? Prairie dogs. Oh, it's really? Like little tiny prairie dogs. <laughs> I love that. Oh, amazing. And in the Frederick Church, Heart of the Andes, the the, the flowers, all the different mm. blues and reds and just, I mean, you could really stand there. And mm. I, I think he rented out um, like, oh, like kind of like a, a telescope, like a telescope mm. that you, it really focused you mm. onto one particular piece of the painting. So that helped the viewers kind of really zero in on the, on the minutia of well, what, the ability of all mm. those guys to render plants is mind blowing. Yeah, amazing. And yesterday we went to Alana, which is the historical home of Frederick Church. Right. And there, uh, unfortunately, I thought there'd be more of his paintings there, but there, there are a few. But, there are a few. But um, it's astonishing the optical illusion going on because when you go right up close to him, yeah. you can see the foliage is just. A little brushstroke. Exactly. And you step away and the hyper... <laughs> it's like, a flower. <laughs> All of a sudden. The hyper-realism of the <laughs> foliage, the the way those guys would render the rocks yeah, yeah. and render leaves and, and foliage, it's like, yeah. man, these guys are It's incredible. very impressive. I mean, it. Uh, I took an art class in college. Nice. And unless, in my opinion, you're, you're born mm. to paint, you know, because mm. uh, I was not born to paint. Mm. <laughs> so my compositions were pretty comical. I mean, I think I passed just, it was a mercy see maybe, but it's, it's. Hey, I, maybe you're a folk artist. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I never tried that, but uh, to, to see such detail mm -hmm. and depth mm -hmm. in these compositions, it just, uh, you know, and again, I really got the entire picture. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, quickly, moving to Stony Point, mm -hmm. literally as a 10-year-old, walking through streams, walking down to the, to, the, to the riverside, walking on the rocks, if my parents ever knew. I mean, they would have killed me, right? 
10 years old, 12 years old, walking on these dangerous rocks, just so enamored with the river and everything. Mm. Going Then I'm a little older. We get cars in our mm. teenage years, and we're driving up to West Point, mm. and we're drinking beer, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. in the mountains it's on Seven Lakes Drive. And you're just absorbing all of this. And, you know, back in the day, we would go see rock bands mm -hmm. in Westchester County. We'd go over the Bear Mountain Bridge. We'd come oh. home at three in the morning. It's pitch black. And you just... That bridge is amazing. And some people would be, would be whoa, that must have been scary. But for, for whatever reason, maybe because we grew up there, me and my friends, you almost felt like, and I've heard Cole and some other people say, you almost felt cloaked hmm. in this safety hmm. of the woods and the darkness as weird as that may sound for some people or other people may completely relate to it we were never afraid to come home at three in the morning in the middle of the woods yeah those roads are really in the middle treacherous the they Nowhere. actually closed one of the roads in the hmm. winter over there near yorktown heights but um that's interesting you say that when i before i when i still lived in new york like the first time I went and stayed at a little cabin in the middle of nowhere and it's like 10 minutes in Ohio and it's like 10 minutes down a trail to get, well, maybe five minutes. Thomas Cole lived in Ohio for a while. To get to like the little cabin in the pitch black. It's like it just had, you know, living after living in Manhattan or in Brooklyn for so long, just like the fear of darkness. Yeah, yeah. And now that we live in the woods, it's like, I understand what you're saying, that calmness, yeah. that cloak of darkness. You feel safe. Mm. You feel... Um, you feel completely at home and at ease. So, you know, I took that upbringing. Then, you know, I go to college. I, I get a job in the city. I'm mm -hmm. in my 20s now. And, um, and I'm working near an art gallery. I'm, I, I worked at Sony Music at 55th and Madison for 15 years through the 90s and the 2000s. And uh, so I used to walk up to this art gallery called Quest Royal Fine Art on... Park Avenue and 79th. And lo and behold, this was a, an art gallery, still is, that specializes in Hudson River School paintings. So now I'm in my 20s or 30s and I'm going to this art gallery and I'm seeing all of these paintings from the Hudson River School painters. And I see, oh, that's the spot in West Point that I stood. Oh, that's Storm King Mount. Like I knew all of these different locations and it just, Boom. I was hooked. Mm. I was hooked. I fell in love with the art. I fell in love with the story. I fell in love with, you know, I had already been in love with the area. Now I really started seeing all these, oh, I don't know where that is. I don't know where. The, so that led me back to the woods, to Cater's Kills Falls, to sign up for a tour with a tour guide that goes through the Catskills in the summer, um, the Hudson River School Trail, which I guess you could Google. And you sign up in... Uh, my wife Maria was with me and we were with maybe five or seven other people, a tour guide. You bring a, a sandwich, you bring lunch, and he takes you to all these different spots. So incredible to yeah. stand in the spot. In the exact spot where the Catskill uh, Mountain House was, which was a huge, beautiful hotel that was right on a cliff um, in the Catskills. And from that cliff, you could see, I don't know how many miles, 30 or 40 miles up and down the river. Mm. You could see as far east as Massachusetts mm. and maybe, maybe Vermont, maybe Vermont. Yeah. So, um, but they take you on all these spots. Then they take you to North, took us to North Lake, which was one of Thomas Cole's first paintings. Mm. 
where he was discovered. Um, Lake with Dead Trees, I think that one it was is called. hands down one of my favorites. Yeah. Because so, that one's got more of a bit of a gothic vibe. Exactly. All the dead snags, the dead and dark, sna- right. dark swamp with these with these stags running through. Yeah, yeah. That and and, and seeing Cater Sills Falls. Well, in, that one's incredible. In person. Cater Seal Falls is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been, really. So so many artists painted that. And so uh if if you get a chance, folks listening out there, to go on one of these tours in the cast please do it because i want to do that yeah you would you will really love it and 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 what i saw in a documentary i don't think it was yours is another one they said that a lot of those spots are still quite still the same they're in what thank god yeah thank god they're still intact they are they are yeah there's really been very little if any commercialization Mm. which uh which is great so that's why i said earlier yeah everything is pretty much in the catskills and adirondacks those are protected lands a lot of it now Mm. You know, it's pretty much the same, pretty much the same as as it was back in the uh, in the 1800s. Um, so what are some, uh, well, let me see here. We started talking about the environmental element that they had going on, which I find so fascinating. Um, like, so maybe what are some symbols that you would see in, in some of their paintings? Because, okay, so, you know, reviewing their paintings, you know, there's some of them have train tracks in them with a train. So for the modern day viewer, I'm still like, oh, well, that's bucolic. Right. But that's not what they were saying back then. No, if you notice any, and there are very few Hudson River School paintings with trains in them. Mm-hmm. But wherever you do see a train, like Jasper Cropsey has a, a beautiful painting called yep. Staruka Viaduct, which is featured in part one. Um, you can see where the train is, you know, it's tiny. Mm-hmm. And the rest of nature is this grandeur this beautiful Mm. huge mountain and you know and that was uh that was done intentionally to show that you know man is you know small compared to the the wondrous nature of Mm. the divine Mm. so they you know and i think george innes has another has also has a painting with a train in it same thing it's Mm. very small i think he actually painted it for like a train company like Union Pacific or mm. one of those, they asked them to do a, but I, like but, a poster, but it was a painting. And again, the train's very small and nature is very large. But I was even reading or uh, seeing in a little clip on YouTube that it was actually quite controversial to add the train because a lot of these guys purposely were omitting the presence of yeah. modern human. Right. Some A lot of the guys, it seemed, would use a tiny silhouette of yeah. either... Um, you know, a, a white man or of a Native American. Right. They would use those as like a tiny figure in the landscape, right. but rarely were they putting in modern, uh, to them, modern day structures. Like I saw that um, the in the Catterskill painting, there was a overlook at the top and it was exactly. purposely not included in the painting. With a very small Native American. Little guy standing on the thing. Yeah, Cole did that a lot. He did that a lot. Uh, I like that. I like that artistic license to add the romance and to add whatever you know that kind of the primal they're tr- tr- like the primal wilderness um that they were trying to go for exactly you know it was it must have been sad for them because they they loved nature thomas cole traveled to europe and he he witnessed firsthand the antiquity mm. and the ter- deterioration just over time of buildings and mm. cities in decay and and it dawned on him when he came back to, you know, the Americas, this new land, new land, right, of opportunity and growth. And 
And it, it dawned in him, wow, we could become that. Mm. How do we pre- pre- prevent that? And um, that led him to, to paint that five-part series, The Course of Empire, you know, and it's a five-part series where... Uh, and, and that connects to two things we've already been talking about. How, talking about your childhood of yeah. seeing that landscape transform. Right. And talking about what I was saying about that movie theater element. Right. H- him doing these five paintings, you know, when you see him want the ne- one and the next and the next, basically there were five paintings of the exact same landscape. Exactly. The first one is of a wilderness right. with with ancient peoples, with right. ancient hunter-gatherers. Someone with a, an arrow uh-huh. hunting. I think there's a stag running. Yes. And there's like a... Um, uh, and there's a you know prehistoric village in the background. Right. The second one is a far like bucolic see, farmers. A little more, it's a little more advancement of civilization, mm-hmm. but still very romantic, still very rural. Right. There's there's some livestock running around. Exactly. Then the third one is full on. Is it is it Greek full or Roman? Blown looks like Roman Empire yes. decadence. Outrageous. Uh, it's almost outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. Then the fourth one, and all of, and by the way, all of these have a uh, the hook of a mountain, the mountain like a cliff. same mountain. Yeah, in the background. To, to stress, like this is the same place. Spot. The fourth one is that decadent empire turned into a a war zone yeah. of madness and chaos. Right. And then the fifth one are these ruins, rebirth, and and things growing on the ruins. Right. Things growing on the ruins. Yeah. Think about oh, that. that's a good point. Think about that. And Rebirth. At, you and, have this decay, but at the same time, there's the bird, right? Oh, at I didn't the, notice that. At the top of the, the, the pillar. Mm. And so it's like your life goes on. Life, Thank God. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, something that I actually watched part two again last night, mm. just as a, as a refresher. I haven't watched it in a few months. I haven't watched that one yet. I yeah. watched the Artistic Pioneers. It's called Cultivating a Tradition. It, it focuses on the second generation of Hudson River School artists, which includes Sanford Gifford, Martin Johnson, he, George Innes, um, and some others, John Kensett. But it dawned on me last night watching this that Martin Johnson Heed, again, around the same time of the Darwinism hmm. being controversial, he traveled to South America to paint hummingbirds. Hmm. And in part two, Kevin Avery was nice enough to be interviewed and spoke about Heed and his love of hummingbirds. And, and it dawned on me last night, like, I googled uh, how old are hummingbirds or something to hmm. that. And... There are reports that hummingbirds go back 20 million years. Mm. So part of this evolution, right? Mm. And then Darwin's the theory of evolution was controversial. So again, artists like any artist, musicians, writers, mm. poets, they're inspired by the times. Mm. They're inspired by, you know, what's going on. And maybe Martin Johnson Heat. I never read this anywhere. This is my, mm-hmm. you know, hypothesis maybe. Maybe he was inspired by... Alexander von Humboldt, like Frederick Church, to go to South America to mm. see, you know, the jungles, to mm. see something primitive, mm. um, and and to check out these hummingbirds, which mm. are talk about uh, a, a long evolutionary period. Mm. Hummingbirds, twenty-two million years of evolution, which is what the Darwin, you know, theory was about. Mm. Um, Maybe that's what led him to go to South America and paint these beautiful hummingbirds in their natural habitat. Mm, so, so awesome. Uh, I'm, not, I'm unfamiliar with those paintings. I'll yeah, have to check that out. Yeah, beautiful. I beautiful. love this idea of the um, naturalist adventure artist. 
I think that's so neat. You know, like I want to do an episode at some point on like John James Audubon. You know, yeah, yeah. like just these guys. Oh, yeah. It's just Beautiful. I love this stuff. Beautiful stuff. I know if you really if you think about it again, a lot of these guys did not make a lot of a lot of money. Mm. It was purely a love of their art and a love of nature. I mean, they were driven. Um, their whole lives. I mean, a lot of them lived in poverty. A lot mm. of them were poor. Um, but, uh, you know, they needed patrons. Like myself, any documentary filmmaker. Yes. I couldn't make my... Like two, me. Yeah, I couldn't make I my documentaries patrons. without, you know, foundations that, mm. you know, supported the projects. And likewise, those guys couldn't travel to Europe without patrons of the arts, literally giving them money to get on the ship and go mm. and live and eat and paint supplies and all that and... The Impressionists, they went through the same problem. And I think sometimes there's a, um, a sentiment um, to look poorly at, at the rich. But I think one really positive thing about the rich is throughout history, they have funded the arts. Absolutely. You know, J.P. Morgan, I talked to on the last episode because I interviewed a guy who is of a, a Nanticoke um, tribe member. Wow. And so anyways, I was just reflecting on um, different artists who have portrayed Native Americans. So one of those was Edward Curtis, who did similarly to what we were saying about Albert Bierstadt right. of, of capturing um, a world that's vanishing. Right. And Edward Curtis, famous photographer, early 1900s, went around and tried to photograph all the remaining tribes. Wow. They are some of the most incredible photographs ever. Right. And, um, but he was completely funded by J.P. Morgan. Right. I mean, wow. so, you know, I think there you know, th I, I'm super thankful for, for my own artwork and whatnot to be, to have patrons, to have, pe to, pe to have people who are able to um, have excess money to fund beautiful beauty, right? The arts and beauty. Sure. Well, I think her name is Elizabeth Colt. Okay. Uh, Colt 45. Oh, the gun? Gun manufacturer. I'm a hunter, so yeah, I like so that kind of stuff. They were huge patrons of the arts. Really? And, and lovers of the Hudson River School. Really? So it's no surprise that the Wadsworth uh, Athenaeum uh, up in Hartford, has a beautiful collection, you know, mainly from her collection, from her, you know, sponsoring artists and, and purchasing paintings. Wow. So if, if anyone out there is, is near Hartford and wants to make a road trip, wow. it's a beautiful, beautiful museum. Yeah. The cult. Fascinating. And, yeah. So, um, and I believe Daniel Wadsworth, you know, started the museum, and, uh, but the cult family was huge. Wow. In, in, Who knew? Uh, in the collection. They're responsible for the collection that's in that museum. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so something I found really interesting, you know, throughout, um, you know, my 20s, you know, living in New York, I was always studying different artists. You know, the Hudson River Valley isn't exactly, you know, my favorite genre. I, you know, I love the surrealists, et cetera. Mm, right. But, um, you know, learning about different genres of art, it's interesting to see how the people of that time and how the critics responded to art, um, you know, a genre such as the pre-Raphaelites, when right. they, it was like a gang of guys who came out with these kind of hyper-stylized, hyper-detailed paintings where they were doing religious imagery, but they were using common people. And this was like so grotesque to like critics. And they, they were just like hated. Mm. I think that's accurate history. But so how was the it looks as though, from your documentary and other sources I've seen, it looks as though that when these Hudson paintings came out, that it was really accepted. Yeah, I think for the most part, mm. from what I've read, yeah, I'm sure they had their, you know, the few critics that mm. uh, that weren't so weren't so excited. But um, 
you know, that 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 kind of takes us right to how the name the Hudson River mm. School came about. Please, let's hear it. Because um, you know, the the artists were looked upon. Again, a lot of the artists were from the New York area, painted around here, and um, it was actually a a derogatory comment because oh. at the time. Um, they had a lot of their work in the National Academy of Design, and uh, there was a new group of young artists who had traveled to Europe <clears throat> had come back with a different style. I think, you know, John Lafarge, I think, was one artist, and even George Innes, who was part of the Hudson River School. But, um, you know, it was a different kind of age group. The Cole, Thomas Cole, Durand, Frederick Church, these gentlemen were older, more established. The younger artists came back from Europe, and I think there was a um, there was an issue with the hanging of the the paintings on the hmm. wall. Hmm. You know, I guess if you want yours as close to eye level as possible, so you get the best view. Some of them are way up top, and yeah. So to be clear about what you're talking about, you're talking about like the old school way of viewing art was like salon style, where everything's stacked on top. Exactly. Whereas today you go into a white walled museum and everything's at eye level. Pretty eye level, yeah. Yeah, back in the day they'd be paintings floor to ceiling. And there's still some museums that display they that do. way. They do, yeah. And it's even at the Met, they have a few paintings that are pretty high up on the mm -hmm. wall. I, I understand they want to have as much out there as possible. But yeah, you really lose it. You, lose you do it. lose it, unfortunately. Yeah. So so this other group, um, you know, they came back and they so they formed their own uh, their own uh, academy mm. and. Um, and so there became this this battle of words between them, and uh, you know the Hudson River School were called the older guys were called old fogies. Mm. Oh, that's the New York School, mm. or that's the you know in a der derogatory way. So there are a few theories on how the name came about. One one was that those younger artists said, "Oh, that's the Hudson River School," you mm. know, meaning oh they just paint the Hudson River and they're mm. very you know. There has been blah blah blah. Mm. Another another story was that uh, a critic from some some that sounded like a wild animal, you know, had come up with the name also in a derogatory sense, um, mm. you know, in, in a critical way, and called them the Hudson River School. So, um, but for the most part, yeah, I I haven't read too many things that really cut them to the quick. Mm. I mean, I, I guess they they were pretty much accepted in the beginning. Then as styles change. Taste change, of course, like of music, like anything else. Like anything else. The styles come and go, and uh, after, you know, I don't know, 50 years, they had a good run, 40 or 50 years, um, you know, other, other artists came into play and, and were more, you know, widely accepted. Um, weren't they considered, like, this first, um, like, American art? Is that right? right? Like they were considered like the first, I guess, like first. highbrow American art or something? Yeah, I mean, that, again, they wanted to, especially... Because it, I mean, it was quite a while after the Revolutionary War. Right. They wanted to, you know, elevate landscape painting. Okay. You know, to, to, the, to the respect and the, uh, I guess, intellectual acceptance that uh, paintings had before them. Historical paintings and... Uh, mm -hmm. You know, paintings of generals and, and things mm. like that. So, uh, you know, especially Thomas Cole, he wanted to to paint stories that uh, you know stimulated people, 
had a spiritual connection. Um, and like we said earlier, that people could really, you know, relate to what was going on at the time. And, um, and yeah, really elevated to where it wasn't regarded as ordinary or boring. Mm. Uh, mm. So, uh, and a lot of the other artists kind of took his lead. Asher Durand, um, Frederick Church. He actually taught Frederick Church for a while. I saw that. He was his, he was his student mm-hmm. for a while. And um, you can see in some of Frederick Church's paintings, uh, there's one painting in particular in part two um, where uh, Elizabeth Jacks, who runs the Thomas Cole National Historic Site, says, I thought this was a a Thomas Cole painting. It was a Frederick Church painting. Mm. Um, I think it was called Moses uh, Going to the Promised Land, something like that. Mm. But their styles, you know, Church's style, of course, was influenced by Cole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's often the case with student and and teacher. So a lot of them, but again, getting back to traveling, you know, they traveled to South America, they traveled to Egypt, they traveled, you know, uh, Italy, England, even to uh, even to the the Arctic. I mean, if you okay, did they? Because yeah, there's Frederick, a bunch of these amazing iceberg paintings. Yeah, they went to church. Look. I mean, picture that. You know, being on a boat. Yeah, all of this stuff, like in that time period, are epic. I mean, these excursions. guys are serious. I mean, they left their families at home. Mm-hmm. You know, they got on a boat or they got in a, in a covered wagon. They went through the woods. They battled Indians, the elements. I mean, we're not talking train, well, train, some train travel, but we're not talking, you mm-hmm. know, sophisticated travel here. Mm-hmm. As primitive as you could get. And um, these guys had guts. Mm. These guys had guts, that, especially when, when Church or, or Martin Johnson, he'd were in South America, like to go through jungles. Oh, like, yeah, To man. literally go through jungles. Epic. Just incredible. So Church, yeah, got on a boat and he wanted to see firsthand. These guys wanted to be inspired. They weren't kidding around. They were serious about their art. They wanted to be inspired firsthand. They went to these places. They went to Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. Oh, they just heard things about Niagara. No, no, Church went to Niagara mm-hmm. Falls. That was one of his most famous paintings. And, uh, you know, the famous story is when the critics saw it, they said, this is Niagara with the roar left out. That's yep. what they said, mm-hmm. you know, so the paintings conveyed such a powerful message, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, were they all oil? I think they were for the most part. Okay. I mean, John Kenseth did a lot of drawing, but, uh, again, his most monumental paintings were oil. My girlfriend is an oil painter. So we found it interesting just to kind of know some of the technical elements to see that they weren't necessarily painting on location. They would go out and do sketches and, um, right. sometimes, uh, little painting studies. Right. And then they would bring that back to their studio often in exactly. Manhattan. That's what Thomas Cole did when he went up to the Catskills on his first trip up there, I think in 1824 or five, he came back with his sketchbook. But you what, know? and what I find so fascinating about that is today, you know, when I need a reference, when my girlfriend needs a reference, we can look at one of our photographs. Yeah. Or you can look at a Google image. I know. But the idea, so what is so kind of, powerful and numinous about this is that yeah they've got their sketches and yeah they might have some colored studies but the amount of creativity that is actually going into the final image right because you know i read i don't i can't remember which artist might have been church but you know they might paint the image a year after they actually were there and got their sketch that's right so there's so much creativity going on with atmosphere with color with adding small details like a a tiny figure right with a storm there's often storms in some of the the really good paintings yeah well you know cole said and and 
I'm not going to get this right, but he said something to the effect of I, when I sketch, I bring it back to my studio and only the essential elements mm. present themselves. Mm. So you're not sketching every little detail, but don't probably just what was most important to him or what stood out. Mm. And that's what he kind of conveyed on canvas. So that's why, you know, it'll look similar to the location, but mm -hmm. in his case, he really, um, was more, I don't want to use the word artistic or creative, mm. but mm. he really wanted to incorporate, again, taking it to a higher level mm. of acceptance and bringing uh, landscape painting up to, you know, the respectability that other artists, you know, had obtained. He, um, he would paint in, you know, all these, his imagination was wild and mm. he would paint in, castles and he would paint mm. in uh you know really dramatic elements just mm. to just to make the painting you know may, probably more intellectual mm. um whereas asher durand um i think cole said something i can't be just a leaf painter oh so the other guy was trying to document the exact exact because again mm. how artists and writers are influenced john ruskin had put out a book something about landscape painting, which became the Bible where mm. everybody read his book and it was all about being back to nature mm. and being back to nature meant really capturing, I'm looking at a tree to my left, mm. the roots, the mm. bark, the twig, everything, every element mm. in nature. And mm. if you look at Asher Duran's paintings, they're so intricate. I mean, mm. they're so detailed. And so after John Ruskin printed, published his book, um, a lot of artists took that to heart. Mm. So if you look at the second generation of Hudson River School painters, a lot of it is has this back-to-nature approach mm. where the details are, are so brilliant. Mm. And uh, whenever I see that, I always think to myself, when I'm looking at a painting, I go, this is real, really fine art. Mm. That's my personal inter interpretation when you're a fine art. This is really, you could, there's a whole, again, the more paintings you see in person, the more you can kind of differentiate the, maybe the time put in or the message they wanted to get across. And uh, when I see some of those elements like Heart of the Andes and mm -hmm. the details, like, truly fine art, classic fine art that, that will stand the test of time mm -hmm. probably forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, since moving down to the country, I've become very interested and enamored by folk art, which I was not yeah. interested in when I lived in New York City. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't see much of it going to the Met and whatnot, but, uh, you know, I love them all equally. I love all, basically, I love all creativity, yeah. and I like to just, um, but yeah, I mean, what, what we're talking about is definitely fine art. Yeah. Without yeah. a doubt. And their paintings had so many, so many messages that mm -hmm. people related to. Uh, like what? You know, we covered, you know, spirituality, yeah, with so God how, in nature. So and, how do you feel, what were their feelings there? And how do you think they Again, all very that? religious people. And, and again, being in the woods and, and having a love of nature like they did, they wanted to convey that nature, that message that God is nature. God is mm. one in nature. You're sitting in God's temple. You're sitting in his creation mm. and it should be honored and it should be protected, you know, which led to their environmental, you know. Uh, yeah. There's an element of looking at Eden when yeah, you look at their exactly, images. Exactly. So it's like the, the perfect God's perfect world right. before man has kind of, 
squandered it. Right. And then, you know, Cole had the, another series called The Voyage of Life, again, like I said earlier, where he really used his imagi- imagination and incorporated his, his spiritual, you know, uh, you know, devotion. You could tell in, in these paintings about a person's life. And these are in the, uh, in the uh, National Gallery in Washington, I believe. I'm not sure I'm familiar with this one. The Voyage of Life, four or five paintings. The first painting is a little baby in a, in a, like a little boat, a little oh, tiny bit going this. down a river. Mm. And then the next one is called uh, maybe Youth. And you see an, a, like a young man, he's in a boat. And it all goes through the stages mm. of, of a person's life, the voyage of life. Mm. And there's all these spiritual images in the clouds. You mm. see angels guiding them. Mm. And you see, you know, maybe heaven up in this cloud over mm. here. You know, again, messages of like, God is watching you. God's mm. a part of your life. Mm. There's this spirituality that exists around all of us, our spirit guide, so to mm. speak. And he and he wanted to convey that message like, here, this is, you know, the, the sequence of events in a person's life. And it's literally a little baby in a boat. Mm, that sounds interesting. And, the, per- and the very last one is an old man and yeah. he's kind of has no hair. And, you know, you can see now it's, you know, the, the third one where it's the, the middle age, you know, the waters are turbulent. Mm. You go through some of life's difficulties. Mm. Then when you get to the last one, there's an old man in the boat and uh, he has no hair. And you can see that he's heading towards heaven. And it, it's just such so a... So the whole be- thing is on a river? Yeah. Oh, that's all, awesome. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful very message. Very symbolic. Yes, very. Uh, and it's such, a, it's such a beautiful message. So, they, you know, they would, not just Thomas Cole, a lot of them would incorporate images like that you mentioned thunder before yes. and lightning bolts you know um that uh, you saw some of that when uh, when the civil war came around mm. there was martin johnson he'd had a series of thunderstorm paintings mm. and that's mentioned in part two um mm. john wilmerding who's really just a brilliant scholar and i think he ran the the museum at the smithsonian for a while the national gallery and uh he 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 contributes such great commentary, but you know he had mentioned that Martin Johnson he had a, maybe two or three paintings, all thunderstorms, thunderclouds, lightning mm. bolts, mm. all preceding the Civil War. They knew oh what was God, coming. Fancy. They knew the death and destruction. Mm. Um, Frederick Church also with uh, volcanoes exploding. Oh wow! You know, I had no idea that that was based around that. Yeah. And uh, Will Coleman, who was at the Newark Museum, he was interviewed, and, and there's a Frederick Church painting that he he talked about, um, Arbiter uh, Twixt Between Day and Night. I'm getting the title wrong, but again, there's this sunset, and the sun is setting into the mountains. It's right before the Civil War. It's a commentary on maybe this is, you know, the great experiment gone awry. Mm. It's the sun setting on America. Mm. So there were a lot of these, you know, messages that they put into their into their work that made people stop and think and and get emotional over. And, uh, mm. and Elizabeth Jacks also says towards the end of part two that... Um, even today, these paintings have a spiritual connection where mm. people seek solace and they get a lot of, you know, peace and um, and this feeling of serenity, especially with, you know, what we've gone through with the pandemic and... Mm. Um, the, well, the, and just even the... Con- you know, I've heard in various sources 
at present the contemplation of the fall of our American empire. Right. So, and how fascinating to look at those five paintings where you see the rise and fall and to contemplate perhaps where we're at in that stage, in that sequence. Right. Well, Wilmer Ding talks about, you know, part two is covers a lot of luminism, mm. um, which, um, which came about, again, you mentioned something about them painting in the woods. You know, that actually did come about in the mid-1800s because the... I guess the paint manufacturers came up with little paints in tubes, in small tubes. Oh, wow. You know, they were called cadmium colors, and they mm -hmm. were oranges, yellows, reds, that now the artists could put in their pouch, oh take with God. them into the woods, bring a little 8 by 10 or even bigger, you know, piece of canvas. Before, so, but what you're trying to say right now is before that, it was just such a, you had to be mixing all your own paints. You could never Mix be able to have paint. that, you wouldn't be able to have that, um, the, that mobility. Right. Right. Like we said earlier, they would sketch and bring wow. their sketchbooks back. Now they had these new cadmium colors. They were literally taken to the woods, paint outdoors, which was called plein air painting, mm. painting outdoors and really capture the sunset mm. or, or capture the sunrise. Or, and a lot of that happened in the mid-1800s with the coming of the war. Mm. And now that these colors existed, the artist could really capture, mm. you know, and again, the co colors came to symbolize uh, different things also, you know, um, the sunsets, you know, they were- Yeah, some uh, of them are- some of them are so incredible. Yeah. And um, they wanted to express the passage of time, mm. the changing of the seasons, death, rebirth. Mm. They had all these intrinsic messages that, you know, someone would look at and go, well, that's just a painting of a sunset. But, well, what was the time period and what's, you know, what's actually happening? And maybe what is the artist trying to say? I always had that difficulty my, myself, what, you know, in the beginning years ago, like, oh, well, what does this mean? What could it mean? And um, the Hudson River School had pretty specific meanings in, in a lot of their paintings. Well, yeah. So I had heard that um, one element of what their work was morality and I didn't quite get it. And you have just kind of illustrated it. Now I see much more what you're saying. And just the way that they symbolize that coming war, you know, it made me think I'm very into Carl Jung and Jungian psychology. Right. And the way that, um, you know, part of Jungian psychology is the analysis of dreams and the way that the unconscious will um, identify certain topics through symbolic language. And what you're saying is so fascinating because it's almost like dream language. Right. Like, how would a coming war be illustrated by the unconscious? It would be something like a dream of a storm. Right. So that's awesome. Thank you for bringing that up yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. going to make me look at their paintings with a, with much more richness now. Right, right. And Jasper Crops especially used these beautiful yellows and golds mm. and, uh, um, and his, his painting, Autumn uh, on the Hudson, mm. was probably his most famous. And uh, he was actually in England when he painted that. But... Um, he became so famous, he was presented to Queen Victoria. And, and people in England, they couldn't believe that those brilliant colors were really here. Mm. Like he actually sent for leaves, like from here, to go back to England to say, no, these are the leaves that, you know. They thought it was some bizarre, yeah, surrealist Yeah, they're like, oh, the, the leaves can't be that golden. They can't be that oh, yellow. And it's <laughs> like some red, you know. So he actually sent for leaves and oh, said, no, these so are the cool. leaves that I'm painting. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So, um, but again, a lot of his paintings, uh, he was a very spiritual man, a very religious man, you know, and his, a lot of his paintings are meant to convey that connection between God and nature. Hmm. So, um, 
but again, you know, sunsets mm. and um, the, the the luminous paintings, a lot of them were kind of glassy water scenes, mm. smaller horizontal paintings. Uh, I'm assuming luminous is about the capturing of light or yes, something? Yes, exactly. Okay. And, you know, Fitz Henry Lane was, you know, he's featured in part two, John Kensett, um, and, uh, and Martin Johnson Heed. And, the, you know, again, the glassy lakes, uh, again, meant to uh, convey a message of reflection. Mm. Again, Wilmer Ding talks about this in part two. Uh, meditation, contemplation, tranquility. Again, what were people going through in the mid-1800s? War, change, industrialization, mm. people losing jobs. Um, because of machinery. That's, that's why Thomas Cole's family moved here from England. The textile industry, which is what his family was involved in, was taken over by machines. Mm. So people were- All lost their jobs. Lost their jobs. So what mm. do you do? I mean, you talk about guts. I mean, mm. in doing what you have to do to provide for your family, you know, you mm. get on a boat, you come to America. Oh, that's insane. You have no family here, no money, no nothing. Mm -hmm. You're literally starting completely anew. And, um, and that happened a lot mm. and that happened a lot. So, um, yeah, you know, a lot of the, the, the paint, the paintings that I look at now, it's, um, and, um, John Driscoll talks about, uh, in part two, you know, patriotism, education, religion. Mm. There's a painting by John Kensett, um, called, uh, Mount Washington in the Conway Valley, which is in Wesley College. And it's a huge painting, and it's of this valley, this beautiful bucolic scene, but, you know, there's a church steeple, mm. and there's, you know, Mount Washington. So, you know, Mr. Driscoll, rest in peace, he actually died of COVID last year. Mm. He was going to be in part three. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that happened, and it was really heartbreaking. But in part two, he gives such a beautiful commentary about Mount Washington and that painting and how it really symbolized so many different things that that kind of propelled the Hudson River School second generation for many years. Hmm. Mount Washington to honor George Washington mm. and the the, the the fields with, you know, food growing to symbolize, you know, providing for the future and mm. for the nation and your family and education. There's an academy there to symbolize education. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's a church steeple to, to show people's, you know, religious nature. And it, it's such a, if you get a chance, it's such a beautiful description of the painting. Mm. I, I want to hop in my car and go to, you know, Wesley College, which I think is in New Hampshire. Was there an element of... Um like, I hate the idea of reducing their art to this, but I'll just ask it anyways. Yeah. Um, you know, my girlfriend, she's from New Zealand. So a lot of, um, I guess, the English and who are going over there would paint these unbelievable um, nature scenes, landscapes of New Zealand kind of as a recruitment yes. to get people to come to New Zealand. Do you, was there any element of that with the Hudson School? There was. That was, okay. that was Albert Bierstadt's paintings of the West. Okay. Literally influenced, you know, Germans and Europeans. But was that his goal? I mean, I, I think, it was I think that's goal. lame to think that that's no, what they were trying to do. No, I don't think that was his goal, but... It must have been inspiring. These were from some of the first mm -hmm. images, I guess, that mm -hmm. people were seeing of the... And how... You can't help but be inspired by... The Rocky Mountains. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the, the painting at the Met. Rocky Mountains at mm -hmm. Landers Peak. He named after Frederick Landers. 
um, the, the, the military person mm. I, I talked about earlier because he, they became friends mm -hmm. being on this expedition together. He died in the Civil War. So that painting, he actually did two paintings called Lander's Peak. But, um, but a lot of the, those Western paintings, mm -hmm. um, yeah, they, they, they made their way to Europe. You know, and, and people saw this and, you know, if, if you're, um, if you're having a, a hard time earning a living or, you know, you see the land of opportunity mm -hmm. with all these opportunities, you know, all new, you know, lands being cleared and mm. places to live and railroads being built. I mean, it was just, uh. It must have been exciting and scary and terrifying at mm -hmm. the same time to pick up your whole family and say, well, and a lot of those people that, that settled in the, in the Midwest, they didn't survive because they didn't realize, you know, how, uh, how dangerous the, mm. the, the winters are, mm. you know, in the Midwest. And, uh, A myriad of brutal things to try brutal. to live through. Yeah. So, um, it was enticing. A lot of families made it. A lot mm. of families didn't, but- you know, Albert Bierstadt's paintings definitely played a role in inspiring people to head west. What decades were they? Were those artists going out <clears throat> west? Because um, I was trying to set that in history. Probably, probably the forties and fifties. Forties, okay, okay, yeah. okay. So yeah, so yeah, so like eighteen oh seven or something is Lewis and Clark, and then like eighteen twenties to forties is like the Mountain Man fur trappers out west. Right, and then. And you'll see paintings by Cole and Stanford Gifford of log cabins, mm. and again, uh, and then the memorialize 50s. maybe that because mm -hmm. it was disappearing. You know, yes. even then, then that was disappearing. And then the 1850, I think, is the Transcontinental Railroad. I think right. So, and, oh, oh, no, no, no. The 49ers is because that's when all that uh, migration. Uh, yes. So right. okay, so they were going out there around the time uh, of the big like. Oregon Trail movement. Right, exactly. I think that would be set I think that's there, about right, yeah. Around there. Yeah. Um, and, and Worthington Withridge also. He uh, he headed west. He, he he loved the west and he painted a lot of a lot of scenery out there. And mm. in part two, uh, Will Coleman at the Newark Museum, he's now at the Alana Partnership actually, um, talks about a, a painting from... Um, it's called the Alpine. It's, it's, it's one of Withridge's biggest paintings, but it's in Europe. It's in the, mm. in the Swiss Alps, I believe. Mm. But um, wait, the scenery or the yeah, word? the scenery, okay. yeah. So, but uh, because he had studied in um, in in Germany, you know, with uh, Emmanuel Leutze, mm. who painted Washington Crossing the Delaware, that huge painting at the Met. Very famous it's Washington painting. Crossing Very the Delaware. famous, yes. I know what you're talking about. So, um, and, and actually, that's an enormous painting. And General Washington in that painting mm -hmm. is Worthington Withridge. He posed for that. Oh, it's Because him. they were ah. friends. Um, so, um, yeah, but Worthington Withridge has some beautiful paintings of the, of the West. And, um, and yeah, I, they're, they're at the Met. The Met has such an amazing collection. Oh, it's one of the most yeah. amazing places on yeah, earth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like the, one of the highlights of living in New York City is access to the Met. I went to the first time, <clears throat> excuse me, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Okay. About two or three years ago. And they have an amazing Hudson River School collection. Really? Another place that's mm. just uh, very hard to leave. I mean, mm. you could spend 
so many hours just admiring the beauty. I mean, I it's, believe uh, it. yeah, very moving. So you brought this story about coal, but, but, but right before we get to that, there was something like, I just really want to bring up cause I thought it was so cool. Yeah. Yesterday we went to Alana house right. and they were, um, some, uh, one of the curators, I don't know what they, you would, their title is, right, but, yeah. um, mentioned how, you know, and often in some of these, you know, throughout this interview, we've been talking about different symbols that have come across in the Hudson School paintings. Right. So, and so one symbol is of a felled tree. And, um, you know, there will be a stump in yeah. some of these paintings. And they were talking about how at that time period, the Hudson River Valley was um, really being logged super hard. Right. And it was for hemlock trees for the... Um, uh, leather tanning yes, business. Yes, that's right. Which is so fascinating because I guess something in the hemlock, the tannins in there I think it, preserve yes. leather. I heard something about that, right. And right. it made me think, um, my girlfriend and I, over the winter, we went to Blackwater Falls in West Virginia. Hmm. Incredible spot. Yeah. And the actual waterfalls are, is tea, it's a rip-roaring waterfall, wow. but it's tea-colored. And then when you go and walk around around the stones, the pools are like, black and golden and it's mm. from the dot the natural dye from the hemlock really wow. and so i thought oh interesting so that color and those whatever the chem the chemistry of the yeah, yeah. tannins is what they used so and so i think kind of what i'm hearing is that some of the uh their paintings were used in this environmental way to kind of say hey let's not cut all the trees down well you'll see in a lot of coal paintings asha duran paintings Sanford Gifford, too, I, I believe. A lot of stumps. Mm. Uh, George Ennis, and, and again, that's intentional. Mm. Um, and and Cole uh, was quoted as saying something to, you know, you know the, the axes. We've got to try to, uh, you know, avoid the axe. And mm. uh, <clears throat> that this was the reason that, you know, the, the beauty was changing so radically because mm. of the axe or something to that effect. Interesting. So uh, so they painted this as a statement, as a protest. Interesting. And do you think it actually had an effect on the masses as an environmental movement? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. But um, Interesting. You know, what are they, you know, change marches on. It's mm, uh, well, yeah, some things sure. are inevitable. And then we take advantage of those changes, fortunately mm. or unfortunately. Mm. Um, so... Interesting. It's interesting to see that in so many Hudson River School paintings, but mm. but that's intentional. Mm, totally. Yeah. Broken branches, tree stumps. Their their use of trees is is one of the 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 high points of the movement. Right. I mean, all those they clearly they use trees on purpose to frame the image right. on the sides. That was from Claude Lorraine again okay. when they went to Europe. That you know, Cole was influenced by French artist by the name of Claude Claude Laurent, Lorraine, mm. and uh, a lot of his. Paintings, uh, 1700s, 1600s, mm. 1700s, had that, that the arched tree, the two arched trees to create a border with the uh, with the um, you know the water or the valley in the d middle of the painting and the distance. Yeah, mm. and they really picked up on that. Mm. You know, similar to a you know musician picking up the style of yeah. you know, the Beatles or yeah. you know influencing writers or poets to mm -hmm. to express again in their own. Unique way. And that's, again, a lot of the Hudson River School painters, you know, stood out because you could tell a George Innes painting, mm. his later paintings from a Thomas Cole painting, a Sanford Gifford painting, mm. 
from a John Kensett painting. You know, Kensett had this soft touch and a lot of mountains and Lake George paintings, and they all had their, their styles, you know, unique styles. I find that interesting, for sure, because um, I consider myself very much an individualist. So mm. um, I wouldn't be part of an artistic movement, but I think it's so fascinating to be in an artistic movement and to have a uniqueness within it. Right. You know, like, Dali is considered a surrealist, but he wasn't in the surrealists. They kicked him out because he was doing his own thing. And yet the surrealists, um, who all considered themselves like a crew, yeah. um, you know, they all had their own unique voice. Right. And so I think all of that is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And they all get some kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, backlash in the beginning because change is tough. Mm. People like Oh, for, for ha expressing their uniqueness? Yeah, yeah, you know, so uh, whenever you know, something new comes along, even in music, uh, you know, the critics kind of, you know, blast yeah. it. And, uh, right. you know, then comes a period of acceptance and then realization that, wow, this is something that never existed before mm. that, um, that's unique unto itself. And people start to let, like the impressionist, mm. right? They were, they were ridiculed. Oh my God, the critics went crazy. What is this? This is just uh, an mm -hmm. impression. This isn't, it's not finished. That's mm. what they, they're, they're exactly. not finished. That's one artistic <laughs> um, genre that I have a hard time with. I'm not, really? I'm not fond of those guys. Really? Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, Hey, so do you want to tell this story about yeah, Toss yeah, Cult? So you you're going to read this? I'm going to read it. I came and what up, are you reading? Is it from his actual journals? The writings of Thomas Cole. And I found this on the internet. So they've got a lot of different stories. And uh, this one in particular really, you know, made me uh, realize or it really struck me as being a person who's been in the woods, you know, most of my life. And being out there alone and being a young person and an older person and uh, not really realizing the dangers until something happens, right? Um, and so here's an instance where Thomas Cole is in the woods, of course. It's a two-parter. The first part's called Storm and the Catskills. I'm not going to read that. But the second part is called The Bewilderment. And... It goes like this. This is Thomas Cole. The sun was low in the sky and seemed to hasten down with unaccustomed speed for I was alone and a stranger in the wilderness. The nearest habitation was on the other side of a mountain, which rose before me, whose tangled woods were the haunt of wild animals. When evening is dropping her dusky curtains, the wind has a tone of sadness, and the sound of the waterfall steals through the arches of the forest like the moaning voice of a spirit. Thus was it with me. I could not but feel a tone of melancholy as I threaded the deepening shadows of the woodlands. The road was steep and difficult. I reached at length the top of the mountain and had a glorious prospect. The chilly air of twilight had come before I could leave this glorious solitude. Anxious to reach my intended resting place for the night, 
I hastened onward with redoubled speed. My path led steeply down into a deep valley. Several times I hesitated in doubt as to its course, and at length I lost it entirely. I went forward and back, to the right hand and to the left, and at length was so bewildered as to be wholly unable to decide which way I should go. The truth at last crept over me. I was lost. Fatigued, dripping with perspiration, disheartened, hungry, and vexed, I sat down amongst the briars with the resolution to wait there until the break of day. But the air grew chilly. Wild clouds hurried across the sky and the wind sounded hollow and forebodingly through the forest. I climbed and stooped, scrambled, crawled, and dodged. Now a limb struck me in the face, and I fell backwards among the brambles. Then I made a misstep, or a rotted bough broke beneath my foot, and I plunged forward with a crash. I was every moment in danger of breaking my limbs and putting out my eyes. The ground was pitch black, and I could see no more of its surface than a blind man. The next few moments were among the most strange and critical in my life. The sod gave way beneath my feet, and I shot down an almost perpendicular bank of earth with a force and swiftness that outstripped the loose earth and stones that came down after me. In vain did I throw up my arms with the hope of grasping rock, root, or shrub. Everything I seized gave way instantly and joined in the general plunge. How long was the earthly steep or how high was the rock over which at last I dashed headlong? I could not tell. Deep water received me in its cold embrace. How I managed to escape instant drowning as I could never swim, I do not know. An involuntary struggle brought me to the surface and clenched my hands to a rock which rose above the water. Upon this rock I climbed and lay for a while motionless and exhausted. My first thought was to sit out the night, but my hands and feet began to ache with cold and my whole frame to shiver. The wind began to howl in the forest above me, in token of coming rain. The trees moaned sullenly and chafed each other, and a large raindrop fell upon my face. A heavy rain I knew would quickly swell the brooks to raging torrents and sweep me from the rock. Something must be done to relieve me from danger. Taking firm hold of the rock, I carefully lowered myself into the water and found it beyond my depth. With the greatest difficulty, I regained the former situation. I then tried the other side of the rock and could touch the bottom. Quitting my stronghold, I waded breast deep in the water until putting forth my hands, I laid them on a wet solid wall of perpendicular rock extending as far as I could reach. My heart sank within me. My blood ran with a chilly tingling through my veins. A cold sweat stood upon my forehead. I was imprisoned in a dungeon of precipices, and the rain was falling in sheets. The sickness of despair seized upon me. 
Here then, I exclaimed aloud, I shall perish. My friends will never know what has become of me. I shouted, but to no purpose. My voice was instantly smothered by the roar of the wind and the rain. Desperation seized upon me, and I determined to rescue myself at every hazard. I first held my hand in the water to learn the direction of the current in order to find some outlet, but the water was in perfect repose. I then began to wade round the pool with one hand upon the rock. Soon I was near the outlet of the dungeon lake, but what was my terror when I found the water tumbling into the mouth of a cavern? I worked with the energy of desperation and found that the rapid was more turbulent than, than deep until I reached the smooth, rocky floor over which the water flowed silently. All at once, the floor declined and the water deepened. I paused a moment, turned back, and struck my head against the limb of a small dry tree lodged by a freshet and on a projecting crag of the cavern. I rolled off the dry fragment of the tree into the water and pushed it on before me until the water was too deep for wading, and then mounting it, committed myself to the mercy of the current. The stream became swift and whirling, and I felt that the crisis of my fate was fast approaching. The murmur had now increased to a dashing of a cascade, and the stillness of the atmosphere was broken by gusts of misty wind. I floated on smoothly and swiftly. There was a sudden lighting up of the darkness, and my bark struck. I sprang into the shallow rapid and was indeed on the verge of a waterfall. But to my great joy, I found myself in the open air. A few steps brought me to a sandbank where I sat down in a state of mingled excitement and gratitude and rested till my stiff and chilly limbs warned me to make some efforts to find a dwelling. So that's a hell of a harrowing experience. I mean, and it's so well written. If you've ever been in the woods or even out at night when there's no light, you you can't see your hand in front of your face. What really stuck out to me was that detail about um, the the branches and stuff. Because if you're not wearing glasses and you're just walking around, so like I hunt, you're not on a hiking trail. Right. So every few steps, you might have a branch that hits you in the eye. So if you can't see anything, right. You know, it's like terrifying. <sighs> terrifying. Yeah. Have you ever had an experience like that? Anything um, weird happen out in the woods or scary? Not really. Not not to that degree. No, I I I did. Uh, you know, I used to visit people up in Albany. They had a house at the top of a mountain, hmm. and um, after dinner we would would go for walks after dinner. And there were no streetlights. It was on the top mm-hmm. of a mountain, dirt road. Mm-hmm. Not another house in sight. I mean, you, could, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was hard to walk because mm. you couldn't see your feet. Mm. Picture, you can't see your feet, mm-hmm. which is only <laughs> a few feet away from your eyes. Mm. So the people uh, that were there told the story of walking down the hill one night after dinner. I wasn't there. They were going down to the bottom of the hill and about to make a right to, go, to continue going down the hill. And all of a sudden, they saw a red light floating coming up the hill towards them and they stopped and the light stopped they saw the light 
the light obviously saw them because the light all of a sudden went back down the hill away from them. And they turn around, turned around and ran back to their house. It. So what they say is usually that's the form a warlock would take is a little light or something mm. like that. A warlock? Yeah, that's what they said. Mm. They had looked it up. I love stuff like that. So, and in this same, mm. on this same mountain, they used to have to back their, their car down into their driveway. And one night, the mother and the daughter were backing their car down into the driveway and the headlights shone across the street into the woods. They were in the middle of the woods. Mm-hmm. And the mother said to the daughter, do you see what I see? And they saw a person hanging in the trees. Like from a noose? From a noose. And they, oh, later, I got chills. they later found out that someone had hung themselves in the woods. Oh my God. On, I got chills. Yeah, on that side of the mountain. So uh, one more quick story. I have a friend. Oh my God. God, who um, who had a friend out in the plains of uh, South Dakota on the the Badlands, and our friend was a Native American, and lived, you know, when they say the Trail of Tears and how the U.S. government moved the Indians. Yeah, I think that was the Cherokee pushing them out Jackson, of maybe. I mean, they really moved these poor people to the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I saw a picture once of where he lived, he lived in a trailer in the middle of nowhere in the plains of South Dakota in the Badlands. And and believe you me, it gets frigid and cold and pretty scary out there. Anyway, my friend visited him one year and um, he said, oh, would you like to go to the sweat lodge with me? So my friend said, sure. So they went to the sweat lodge <clears throat> and my friend describes it as they're in this huge kind of teepee-ish building um, and there are a whole bunch of people sitting around and they go through these ceremonial chants and dances and music. And my friend just sat there and uh, they went back home that night. And my the Native American friend's wife said to him, did they come? And my friend said, well, did who come? And his name was Charlie White Elk. And Charlie said, you'll see when they come. The next night they go there, or a few days later they go back, they go through the ritual again. My friend sits respectfully. It looks like a hummingbird. Oh, yeah, that is a hummingbird. Look at that. Yeah. Freaking, speaking of Martin Johnson Heed. Yep. There's a hummingbird right there. Oh, yeah. So by the, the third or fourth time they would come home and, and uh, Charlie's wife would say, did you see them? Now my friend's wondering, what the heck am I going to see? No, they didn't present themselves, not tonight. So they go there, maybe the fourth or fifth time. I guess whoever, the spirit world. Mm -hmm. Charlie White Elk describes it as they needed to get accustomed to a new person there. Mm, uh, Sure. So they're going through their ritual, and all of a sudden, my friend said, and he was not on any hallucinogenic, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. said, all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes this light that comes whipping around the room. No way. Right around their heads, like a ball of light. Like, wow, boom, fast, boom, from end oh. to end, going all around the thing. And they're going through their rituals like, like nothing's there. Oh, my God. And they all saw it. So they, they got home. And did, did you see them? Charlie said, yes, they presented themselves tonight. So my friend, of course, said, what, what was that? What did we just experience? And um, 
he said, those are the ghosts of the slain ancestors Holy smokes. who come and visit us. And um, my this same friend, he was a musician friend of mine, um, um, wrote a song called Thunder Nation. Mm. And the lyrics are bas- basically say how they are coming, they're, they're riding, they're coming back, they're going to come back someday. Mm. And uh, and rejoice in a, in the Thunder Nation. He called it mm. a Thunder Nation, where they come back from the dead, and then everybody's together again, mm. and it's a beautiful reunion of the dead and the living. And uh, but he said, uh, I didn't know we were going to get paranormal on your podcast. Sorry, yeah, no, 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 was, uh, not sorry. Yeah, that's, that's what uh, I love. Um, so I just did an episode with this uh, Nanticoke. Um, this guy who's Nanticoke, yeah. and uh, he told about, so so his tribe, um, they kind of got pushed into the marshlands in Dorchester County, Maryland. And so he told a story about his grandfather and uh, father and uncle going out duck hunting, and they contacted, they got lost, and they contacted this light. And his story is incredible. And sometimes you get told a story where you're just like, I have, I don't even, I no comments. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, well, because it, it's so, in, it's like, it's, it's so not, out of the ordinary. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, you know, there, ghost story is one thing. UFO story is one thing. But when it's just this mysterious yeah. light that shows up, it's sentient, it flew around them, it, and, and it it's guided them. And it's from someone you're speaking to, it's completely yeah. credible. Like, what is that? And so it's so mysterious that I just am like, wow. Well, again, that was, <laughs> just to get back to the, the Hudson River School uh, painters, I mean, that was what they... They didn't, I never read anything about them experiencing, seeing a light or anything, but they had that kind of deep spiritual connection Mm. by being in the woods. I mean, they really looked at this as like, this is God's creation, Mm. A, this is how he wants it, B, like, Mm. and I'm standing on sacred ground. This Mm. is, uh, Mm. this is a holy temple, Mm. you know, and they really, um, they took that to heart. Mm. I mean, and, uh. And express it in their work, mm. in a lot of their work, and that—that's again, it's that, um, it's that uh, genuineness. Mm. That uh, it's real, mm. it, and you just when you see one of those paintings in person, there's nothing fake about it. No, I mean, no. it's sincere, mm-hmm. you know, as you can get when it comes to watching an artist create from the heart, from the mind, mm. from the soul. Mm, totally. You know, you really, like you stand in front of one of those huge paintings <clears throat> and you have a similar connection. Like, just, it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's very Without powerful. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a good way to end. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you and, so much for having me. I, well, I no, really this appreciate is awesome. this. Yeah, and what you're saying is like, um, they're also painting the, well, you know, the name of the podcast is Numinous Nature. So right. Numinous is like a spiritual moment or a, a heightened moment. And that's what's interesting too, because there's, you know, you can go hiking in the middle of the day and you're, of course, you're in the incredibleness of nature, but they're capturing those numinous moments, which I've had a few, which is like when the lighting is perfect, when twilight, you know, dusk and dawn, like those, those heightened moments, a fog, you know, they're, they're capturing the, the heightened moment when one is in nature. I can give you one one more quick story. Again, like I said earlier, I spent <clears throat> a lot of time in the woods, even as a young kid, six, seven, and I uh, loved to climb trees. So 
I climbed a tree. I was pretty high up. I was maybe 10 or 12 feet up, 15 feet up. And I slipped. And I fell backwards. Free fall. Backwards. And I floated down. Like something just protected me. Oh and I literally God. floated down and there was a rock at the bottom of the tree and I landed on this rock on my back, but just gently. And I thought that was, oh I didn't know God. what to think. I was six or seven, but you read some of this. There was something else in here. I don't want to take up any more of your time, but no, Thomas no, no, no. Cole. Wait, 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 wait. So you feel as though <laughs> some. I knew the fairies were with you. I knew it. Really. The fairies? My girlfriend says it's the fairies. Or some kind of like guardian. Something protected me. Wow. Yes, in the middle of the woods. And so you were conscious as you're falling. Like, oh, I fell backwards. But as you're falling, you were like aware that something was letting you fall softly. Well, I was falling slowly. Oh my God. Like so softly, where when I landed on this rock, it didn't hurt me. So unbelievable. um, yeah, yeah, I really more and more, you know, a lot of, I interview a lot of herbalists and these are some real powerful, wise women and the amount of kind of like spiritual stories, the way they talk about spirit is so fascinating. And, you know, I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware of it in my own life. And, th- and what you're saying there is so fascinating because I really do think that we have spirits that are around us absolutely, and that are helping out. I mean, yeah. I, when I lived in New York, I was a bit of a reckless you know, I was young and just yeah. drinking to oblivion all the time. Yeah. And when I reflect back on that, it's like nothing bad ever happened to me. Yeah. And I'm so thankful. I mean, the amount of times I was totally inebriated in often in oblivion. I never got beat up. I never got mugged. I'm like walking around East New York yeah, in the some ghetto. Spirits, some spirit yes. guides. Uh, yes. Look, we came across that Bear Mountain Bridge, you know, many times in the middle of winter. And anyone familiar with those roads, they're pretty scary icy Mm. and uh, yeah we weren't in the best of shape but we always made it home okay Mm. you know some people didn't make it home okay um one more real quick story i'm sorry don't say sorry i have a friend who um she used to she probably still does she's a very spiritual person and prays to the sea goddess in Mm. in addition to many other Mm -hmm. maybe gods or goddesses i don't know but we were at sandy hook one year Mm -hmm. And uh, we went to the seashore. Uh, Sandy Hook is an island? In New Jersey. It's a beach. Yes, yes. Sandy Hook. Um, And um, there was a military base there at one time. That's a whole other story, but it's open to the public now. So we used to go there. And um, so we said, oh, it was after dinner. Let's go. They had rented a house there, my brother and some friends. After dinner, oh, let's go to the beach. Let's walk to the the water. Okay. Oh, uh, our friend wants to say some prayers to the sea goddess. Okay. So we sit on a blanket. It's it's dark, but you could see the water and everything. We had candles. It was still. It was so still that the night air. It was hot. It was muggy. There was no breeze whatsoever. So we're sitting. So she gets up. She goes to the water's edge. She's maybe 20, 30 yards from us, you know. Within easily within view, we had our candle on our blanket. All of a sudden, she starts praying to the sea goddess, and the wind starts mm. whipping up. I mean, 
hurricane gale force wind coming off the water to the point where it's blowing my hair back. And I said to my brother sitting next to me, we looked at each other like he understood because he, he was familiar with her spirituality and things that she was involved with. I'm sitting there totally like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> now, our candle is sitting there and it never blew out. Our candle's sitting right there. And I'm, I'm telling, I'm saying hurricane winds as she's talking to the sea goddess. So she finishes her thing. She starts coming towards the blanket. The wind stops. Now we're back to no wind, nothing. And I go to take the candle. She said, no, 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 leave the candle. All right, I left the candle. I walked a few feet away. I turned around. The candle went out, right? The wind didn't blow it out. Nothing blew mm. it out. We walk away. It went out by itself. Man. So it really, again, it convinced me once again that there are... There's a lot of mysteries out there. There's a lot of mysteries out there. And there's a lot there. of people who can engage with those mysteries. And that is fascinating. And again, witnessing it firsthand, mm -hmm. not inebriated, mm -hmm. you know, it really, um, it makes you believe, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, there's nature, mother nature, father nature, whoever is out there, whoever floated me down onto that rock. That's incredible. That's one of the coolest things I've heard on this podcast. That's yeah. one of the most fascinating things. Yeah, I floated. I literally floated. I mean- Unreal. Uh, and yeah. you just got up and walked off like nothing happened. Yeah, I thought I knew something happened. No, but I mean, uh, <laughs> like regarding. Oh yeah, pain. I wasn't hurt. No, no, not at all. And you hear that often with like car crashes, yes. with you know, I yep. mean, even what just popped in my head were you know guys in like World War II that fell out of a plane. They and you know they fell out of an, an airplane. Yeah, and then they hit the ground and like had a few broken bones, or some of them not even, and wow. they were able. And it's like, well, what is that? Yeah. What is that? I know. You know, you really wonder like that silly movie Final Destination. You know, you you really wonder, like, is there, a, is there, is everything preordained? Exactly. You know, you just wonder about all this. I know. Fate, uh, purpose in life. Exactly. All of it. Hey, just seeing that hummingbird, mm. I don't think I've ever seen a hummingbird just kind of like f fly past my head. But okay. with all this talk of Martin Johnson Heed. Yeah. Maybe his spirit is paying us a little Very visit. Very interesting. Or, yeah. we, got, I ha we have a lot of hummingbirds at our house. But so, but I'm not familiar with this area, so that's very interesting. Yeah, and I don't see it, a, it, I don't see a feeder. Usually, you need a feeder to yeah. attract them, but I don't even see a feeder. Yeah, and it went for those little um, those little pipey looking flowers over there. Yeah, cool, man. Well, this has been a great this pleasure. Been great, thank you so and, much. And I and oh, I guess to wrap it up, to close it up, just um say something about your documentaries. I watched them on Amazon, or I well to be honest, I watched the first one. Yeah. But they're both available on uh, streaming from Amazon. On uh, Amazon, and they're also, um, they, were, they were just broadcast. The part, part one is called Artistic Pioneers, covers the, the founders, Cole, Durand, Frederick Church, Bierstadt, talk about those paintings at the Met. Part two is called Cultivating a Tradition. That came out right before COVID hit. So, And now you're trying to get funding for number three trying to get funding for part three which would be called i have a few foundations uh, on board it's going to be called the hudson river school abroad and we're going to talk about their their uh their travels abroad south america the arctic cool england uh switzerland cool. Uh, italy uh you know they have beautiful paintings of the parthenon by sanford gifford um uh, Windsor Castle, uh, the Coliseum, mm. of course, the icebergs, 
mountains in South America, Cotopaxi. And yeah, I think it's a really uh, interesting uh, topic. And uh, uh, But anyway, they, parts one and two just played on PBS's channel. They have a new channel called All Arts, the mm. All Arts channel. Okay. And uh, it's really turning into a great, a lot of musical things on there. Okay. Um, things, we love PBS. Yeah, things from the Met. So call your local PBS uh, channel outlet and ask them for the Hudson River School But parts. you can stream it on Amazon. You can stream it too. Yeah. The DVD's for sale on mm. uh, shoppbs.org. And, uh, and it's on YouTube. You can pay it's and on rent YouTube. it on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, and, and I love the, check out the, the covers. The cover to part one is uh, Asher Duran, Kindred Spirits, which... Uh, yes, yes, that's a great painting of standing figure. on a rock. Yeah, and, and part the two, woods. the cover is Sanford Gifford's... Um, and um, and if nothing else, it the the to watch a documentary like yours is such a great resource to be able to see the paintings. Part part two, I must say, I love I love both of them. Part two is really a master class on the Hudson River School second generation and luminism. Mm -hmm. And the first one is a master class on how it all started. Mm -hmm. And um, but to be able to, important, but, but to be able to see the paintings, yeah, like yeah, you can Google the image. But in a documentary like yours, where you got the pan and scan, you can see close-up yeah. details. That's the way. Other than going to the museums, yeah. that's the way to appreciate all high-res, yeah. beautiful, beautiful digital images. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so many museums helped us. The Met. That's I mean, awesome. Oh yeah, numerous. Look, just look at the credits. Yeah, the credits go on forever because so many wonderful people and organizations. That's awesome. Um, and were you got? Were you the first person to do full-length documentaries on that school? You know, in all fairness, the Met did one okay. on VHS. Ah, okay. About twenty years ago. Okay. Thirty years ago, that has since been discontinued. It's all grainy. Of course, I have it, okay. but it's all grainy, and it, it was um, not not very interesting. Okay. Got I don't it. think they really interviewed anyone. Maybe a few people, but. No, this really kind of brings it into 21st century, high-res, digital, yep. um, just just beautiful images. Awesome. And, and, such, and such wonderful talent that I interviewed, you know, mm -hmm. these well-known, well-known art scholars and authors. Linda Ferber was, was wonderful, and John Wilmerding, and many others. So uh, I really, uh, I owe all of them a lot.